0: So, well, welcome to Carlsbad Bible Church. We're glad you're here today. And uh, we hope that uh, your day is blessed with the preaching of God's Word today and the singing of His truths. And um, let's go ahead and get started with um, a reading of God's Word. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So 417, it says, Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in, the, in this way, if indeed you heard Him and were taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And not to and now and, and, and to put on the new man which is in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, and that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed, and that it will give grace to those into uh, whom hear. And do not give the Holy, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were Sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather here today on the Lord's day, on your day, Lord. And we just thank you that. Um, Um, as a church um, body, Lord, that we can come and worship you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you be with the service today, that uh, we glorify you in all that we do. I pray that you be with those who will be teaching your truth today, that you be with them as well as they teach, and that uh, your word, Lord, is understood through the way their message is proclaimed, Lord. And also I pray for the worship today. And pray for our hearts in preparation of today's um, messages, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.
1: You may take your seat. As you take your seat, grab your Bibles, or maybe it's your phone app that you use. As long as you have the Scripture before you, we encourage you to do that. Always hear anyone bringing a message from this pulpit, whether it be me or another elder pastor here. Um, we encourage you to be like the noble-minded Bereans that we find in Acts chapter 17 who did not just take Paul and Silas's words for it as they went into the synagogues to preach and teach from the Scriptures, uh, but they went to the source of the word that they were speaking, and that was the Scriptures themselves. And Paul called them noble-minded because they did that, and we want to encourage you to do the same here. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to go back a, a few verses into last Sunday's teaching only to serve as a lead-in into where we find ourselves this morning. The teaching will be more confined to verses 15 through the end of this chapter, chapter 21. So reading chapters 3, verses 12 through 21, Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of the, uh, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Uh, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father, as we study this together, as your word just begins to have the effect that it is intended to have, that you have already ordained to happen here today, God, that it be that sword, that double-edged knife that penetrates, that cuts into the human soul, that exposes our condition before you, Lord, as those who are sinners, but we are saved by your grace. God, so often we see in our culture um, effort being put into things that are meaningless. We want our time here to be well spent in your word. We know that around your word and in your word is truth. And we pray that that be the things that takes root in our heart. And if there's words that I say that are in error here, God, that you would strike them from my mouth before I even speak them. And we just thank you for those who are gathered here today. We pray that you prepare hearts to hear this message. God, that it would be uh, worship unto you as we study this, as we come alongside each other as your church. Uh, May we encourage one another, may we admonish and challenge each other in our growth, but that we're constantly looking forward and moving towards the upward goal of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for his sacrifice on the cross and that we can be your children, that we can be called yours because of all that he has done. It is none of us, but it is all of you, God. And thank you for saving us. And we pray that there's those here that are not saved, that today you would save. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we look back to our text this morning, we see there in verse 15, which is where we're going to begin, that Paul is talking to those who um, are mature Christians. He is talking about those who have grown in their Christian faith. And we should never see ourselves as having an arrived at a place where we can never learn anymore. But the further we move along in the faith and the more that we grow in Christ, the more mature that we should be. And mature Christians should, like Paul, have a very honest assessment of themselves. Because Christ has made us his own, we thus strive, we press on uh, to make it our own. Arriving at the finish line, we were finally in the presence of our Lord, the one who has saved us. But there is that in-between, and that's where we want to make our life lived here count for something And so we ask ourselves these questions, am I running this race in a way that glorifies my Lord, that represents Christ well to those from the outside looking in on my Christian walk? Am I being intentional in what I'm spending my time doing? Is our life lived here for the sake of Christ? And Paul now includes us in the picture of this Christian walk. If you notice back there in verse 12, he's talking about everything that that he wants to press forward, that I press on, that I urge myself forward. He's speaking of these things being relatable to him, but now he's including us in this grand picture of a Christian walk that is defined not by perfection, but in a pressing like runners in a race, we press on, we strain forward to be more like the one who has saved us and caused us to be co-heirs with him in the inheritance of heaven. That's what we obtain in Christ. Heaven is our inheritance. Heaven is where we will be present with the Lord, and that is where our Christian gaze is fixed. Not on the world's offerings, but of success, not on the world's offerings of some form of prestige or or getting the accolades of men, getting the compliments of men, but we are focused in the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, is what Paul says. Paul would want to identify with his Lord on all levels. Part of our previous study that he was turned on by God's Holy Spirit within him, the Holy Spirit with an energy he had an intent to press on towards the end goal. We want to experience Christ from the power of his resurrection to becoming like him in his sufferings, even to the degree of death, that by any means possible we might attain that resurrection from the dead. Because Paul recognized that the one who saved him was now the one that he longed to be with. Christ was now his everything. For those of us who are saved, Christ is our everything. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Though we recognize that perfection cannot be attained by any Christian, we spoke a lot about this last week, but yet we press on to grow to be more and more Christ-minded that we go more to be Christ-like in our behaviors and in our, in our words, the things that we do and say to each other. And our full maturity will not happen until our address is changed. And I'm not talking about a physical address, but when we are converted, when our hearts are regenerated, when we're saved by God, we are giving a new eternal address, and it is heaven. And Paul is saying that we that are mature Christians should be thinking this way. You know, we don't chase after the, the squirrels, you know, the, the distractions in, in life. We don't look behind us, as he said. We, we press on, forgetting what lies behind. We don't look to the other Christians that are beside us and say, well, they're not doing as well as I am. Look at me, I'm ahead of them. It's recognized that we're all pursuing the same goal together. And that is where we, the church, comes in, that we are being supported And we are also supporting our Christian brothers and sisters in their Christian growth, in their maturing in Christ. Look at the times that Paul uses us in this passage. Verse 15, 16, and 17, he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And he says, brothers, that's speaking to the church, those who are in Christ. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's changing the pronouns here. It's no longer I am doing this, but it's all of us together. He is including all the believers within the church. And there's varying degrees that we find in Christian maturity. Now we all are on a progression towards growing more and more Christ like. At least we should be seeing ourselves as as pressing on and growing more like Christ. Now our Christian walk, we all begin as infants, right? Then we grow into that that toddler phase and we grow into young adults and then we grow into that mature adulthood. And there are some people that are in their, their early 20s that are probably already more mature than some people who are in their 60s in Christ. So there's, it's not by age here, but it's uh, that growth and the knowledge of God, who God is and what he has revealed of himself in his word. So we see these varying degrees of Christian maturity. In 1 John 2, 12 through 14, John writes of that here where he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So that very uh, initiation of that, that rebirth or that new birth in Christ and becoming little children, and then he continues saying, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. That is describing the, the growth as we mature together in Christ and where we might find ourselves um, in, our, in our Christian walk. You know, I liken this sometimes to raising animals. And when Jody and I were raising sheep along with our kids <laughs> for, for the showing in the 4 H at the Fair Barn in, in Eddy County, uh, we learned some things. And I wanted to use sheep. We raised other animals, um, but sheep is very relatable because we are referred to as sheep in the scriptures. But we recognized very early on that if we wanted to raise really good sheep, that they needed companionship. You really just couldn't raise a solitary sheep and expect them to do well, expect them to um, have the right form to them. They, they needed that companionship. They needed other sheep with them. And there was, for one, it was safety in numbers, so they were more relaxed when they had others with them. Um, they were healthier in that they would compete for food in a sense. They would see one eating, and they, okay, well, maybe I need to be eating myself. And so they would eat together, and it was almost like they were encouraging each other on to to grow more and to build their health up. And I think that is very uh, relatable for us. You know, this is why we need the us in our Christian walk. We need others with us. We need companionship. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we as Christians need that fellowship, that companionship as we grow together, the fellowship of good, mature Christians that are also bringing up those around them who may be younger in their faith. I mean, that is a responsibility for those of us who may be further along in their Christian walk, that we have new believers and that we're seeking to disciple them. It involves holding one another accountable and encouraging that spiritual growth in one another. We see someone reading their word and say, Well, they're at that spiritual feeding trough. Maybe I need to be feeding myself as well. I see others in prayer. Maybe I need to be praying as well. And there's that, that healthy spiritual competition, if you will, of just growing more together as we see others coming alongside of us and also growing in the faith. Paul's proper and honest assessment of himself is that he could say that he had arrived at this maturity level where he, those around him could look at him and how he is walking and imitate him. You know, that, that is a bold thing to say, but Paul could say it so far along was he in his Christian walk that he could say, join in imitating me. And then he also encourages looking to others as good examples. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us so he's not just saying I'm the only one doing this I'm the only one that you should imitate but there are also brothers and sisters in the faith who are there in their growth as well to the point where you can also be watching them and using them as examples in your life you know, watching those who are in their word watching those who are wanting to teach and wanting to shepherd others Ray emphasized this in his teaching several weeks ago and looking to the example that Paul was setting but not just Paul Paul recognizes that Epaphroditus was walking closely with the Lord. He was one of those strong, mature Christians that one could look to as a good Christian example to follow. He writes of Timothy there in Philippians 2, verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as son with a father he has served me with, the, with me in the gospel. See, God puts other believers in our lives that will be examples for us to follow, not to be a replacement for our time spent growing in God's Word and maturing ourselves, but there to encourage and bless us as we see them moving towards the goal of being more Christ-like. This this something encouraging about seeing others making that progression to grow more and more to be like Christ. Proverbs 27:17 you know speaks of that iron that sharpens iron so one man sharpens another that there is that clinging against each other but sometimes that iron when it knocks off other parts of the iron to make it sharp you know those things can be painful but that is what we need to be doing it's challenging each other and holding each other accountable that's where sometimes the the larger chunks are knocked off but we're constantly in the phase of refining each other paul was confident enough that Christ in him was going to help him serve as a good example. He would say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we're not looking to other people in this world to imitate so that then we could be a good imitation for others, but we are constantly seeking to imitate ourselves after Christ so that then we can be a good example to others. But people are not a replacement for keeping our spiritual eyes on Christ. Paul is not talking about the spiritual gaze being fixated on a a man here but being focused on the God-man which is Christ who rules and reigns in heaven. Christ is the anchor point. So let me come back real quick to the second half of verse 15 to show this point because Paul says, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So he's pointing to God as the one who is revealing if Seems that he, would, he is saying here and reminding us in them about the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit that dwells within the heart of every believer. If their minds were set on anything else, Paul is saying any other, any other goal in life, that God would reveal that to them also. Almost like that course correction that we all need in our life. Paul didn't think that if he had failed, that they all were lost He recognized that he wasn't perfect, but he trusted in the Lord to deal with his own people. As a believer, the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts us. The the Holy Spirit encourages us from within and also teaches and convicts our spirit. In John 14, 26, when Jesus is giving the promise of the helper to come. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That when we get off track, God will point it out to us so that we can get back on. Now we need to be seeking him. We need to be intentional on our part in going to his truth to guide us, pointing us in the right direction, going to him in prayer. But we can trust that God by his Holy Spirit it's going to be nudging us on that path, keeping us focused on Christ, or the upward call of Christ Jesus in God. And there are sometimes that those course corrections need to be more severe than others. And I've experienced this in my own Christian walk, and I'm sure you have as well. And that is what we're going to experience as, as we grow together. We must remain humble, we must remain teachable looking ultimately to the Holy Spirit to teach us, but also the examples God has given us in others who are in the faith. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And this is where that intentionality comes in, in our Christian walk, where our responsibility lies. We are called to hold true to what we have attained. I think we have a parallel in the book of Philippians Back in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, I believe it was uh, Ray that taught on this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We just don't sit idle once we are saved. But there is a process that is going on within us that that God is working in us, but there is also us in being intentional in pressing on that we are being responsible with what we have been given. We don't just sit idle in the vine. As Christ is described as the vine, we are the branches. The vine gives us spiritual nourishment that activates us and energizes us in our Christian walk. And there are many worldly distractions and sinful habits that can cause us to stumble and even diverge from the path, and that is why we must be intentional. Staying in His Word, praying continually and in all circumstances is what Paul would tell us, urging one another along as we hold each other accountable. And when we level up in maturity, I think this also means that we're not to let go of that and slip back. Right? Only let us hold true to what we have attained and then seek to attain more and seek to attain more, growing more in the knowledge of God. Let me come here to verse 18 now. <clears throat> For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There's a strong warning about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul says that we are watch out for those. And those can be found within the church as well. That may be deceivers or are pretenders. Through the lens now that we view this from is, here in a moment we're going to talk about being citizens. Citizens of, of a country, you know, and that... We are now leaving this analogy of the one who is running the race, and now Paul is calling us to view this from the perspective of one who is a citizen of a country and what that citizenship is for us, especially spiritually for those of us who are believers. Because not everybody within the borders of a country are true citizens, right? You know, there are many here that that don't have their citizenship. Some are naturalized citizens. They've become citizens over time. But there will be those who are within the borders of a country that are hostile to that nation's interest. And such is the case for the church. And Paul understands that this is a problem from within the church. In the midst of Paul's joy, remember Philippians being this book of joy, telling us to rejoice in Christ, here we find him weeping. He is crying over those who, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not rejoicing in that at all. He's not saying, you know, oh, you'll get yours one day. But rather, he is mourning over them. Perhaps he remembers his own hardened heart, and he knows that God can break through, such as the Lord did with him on the Damascus Road. He witnessed this, but his heart, was for them all to hear and know. He recognized they were being led astray. They were, they were even leading others um, away from the, the teachings of Christ. But we should want people to know the saving grace that is for them. We don't rejoice in one who is lost, in one who is being led astray. We see Paul's heart for his countrymen in Romans 9, 3-5. He says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. He is lamenting, he is crying over them, he says even to the degree that if it were possible that, that he could be removed and someone else put in his place, that was his desire to see the lost being saved. Enemies of the cross from outside and those from inside is what Paul would warn about often in Acts chapter 20. Paul is warning the elders in Ephesus uh, right before they leave the, the coast of Miletus there. Paul thinks that he's leaving them for probably the last time, that he may never see them again. So he really wanted to drive home some points to them. And one of the points that he makes is that fierce wolves will come in and try to pick apart the flock, you know, deceiving them and pulling and drawing them away from the faith. But he said, also from among you, also from within the four walls of your church or whatever you're gathering, wherever you call your church, there can be those deceivers, those pretenders, those wolves from within that will deceive, that will pick apart other believers, isolate them and draw them away from the faith. And we have many warnings about this. Jesus himself in Matthew 7:15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Continuing in that same passage of Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Scattered among every church are pretenders are deceivers. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower who sowed good seed. And then in the night, the enemy came and he sowed weeds among the good seed. But both were allowed to grow up together. Don't tear down the weeds lest you take out the good weeds with it. And it will be separated out in the harvest. That's when the separation will happen. Jesus would then explain that parable to his disciples. In 13 verses 38 and 42, "...the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels." The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can all be present here and sing the same songs and we can pray the same prayers, but we can still be false citizens. Christ is not their King. Jesus said that the good seed is sown in the field and tares are sown among the wheat. And not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wherever there is something true, there will also be something counterfeit next to it. And Paul is warning us of this. We are not certain about who Paul is speaking of here. Um, There were various forms on different sides of the spectrum. Uh, One of them is the Judaizers who Paul earlier in this chapter had called the dogs the mutilators, using their own insults for the Gentiles and turning it back around on them. Um, But then you also have those who were the Gnostics, and you could say that they were on the other side of the spectrum here. We know the Judaizers, they basically believe that their, their human works, their human achievements according to the law was what earned them salvation. And it wasn't just Christ on the cross. The Judaizers may be aligned with some of the teachings of Paul, and yes, Christ was the Messiah, but now we have to blend in all of these works with his completed and perfected work of grace on the cross. And Paul was not going to have that. We shouldn't have that either. We shouldn't have in forms of legalisms as a way in which we earn our salvation. You know, ritual things like dietary laws and even circumcision. But then on the other side of that, you have the Gnostics, and they believed that all matter was evil, but that the spirit inwardly was good, and therefore Christ did not come himself in the flesh. Because the flesh is inherently evil, and if he had come in the flesh, then he had to have been evil. And we know that he was pure and and righteous and holy, and therefore he was some kind of phantom spirit. But they taught that you could do anything that you wanted to in your flesh, because since your matter was already evil, only the spirit was good, you could do anything that you wanted indulging in the flesh that your spirit was already saved. And it was just this free grace kind of teaching that they had bought into paul has really strong words for those in romans 6 1 through 4 what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who die to sin still live in it do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. We have been changed. We have been transformed. The Holy Spirit bears fruit in the life of the believer, and that fruit is seen in peace, patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. And we don't indulge the cravings of the flesh. There should be no desire really to do that, and we should be convicted when we do. And so Paul could have been speaking to those who were Gnostics as just saying, it's a free-for-all now. You're saved, and now go out and live your life like you want it. And Scripture would certainly not teach that, and we are not to believe that. But either way, both groups, either the Judaizers or the Gnostics to whom Paul is writing about here, they fit this description as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is a false gospel. We find that you know some hide behind this Mask of religion or some kind of religious group or system. Are we true citizens or are we imitation citizens? Are we false citizens? In verse 20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As citizens, we wait for a place that is promised to us. At the moment of our salvation, God grants us an inheritance of His kingdom. It is said that we become co-heirs with Christ. And that inheritance is being with our Lord in heaven. And it's an assurance and it's a promise from God. And we know that God never, never defaults on His promises. He will always come through. He is faithful to save. So our eternal address changes. In Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, when that if eternal address changes, that also means that things about us sh- should change. There's a contrast that we find here going back into verses 18 and 19 and then comparing it to verse 20. In verse 19, he says, Of those who are enemies of the cross, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly they glory in their shame, and with minds set on earthly things. But then he says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They set their mind on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. The earthly things are here. You know, we have God's provision. We have food and we have family. We have these blessings to us that are are physical, but we should not be living for them. Heaven is our eventual home. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that we are not to store up for ourselves treasure here on this earth that Uh, robbers can come in and steal and that moth and rust can destroy, but rather we are to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven, those things of eternal value, doing the work of His eternal kingdom. Those are the things we need to be laying up for ourselves in our eternal home. And it's not worldly possessions here, but this is doing the work of Christ, becoming more Christ-like, advancing His kingdom. That's laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven doing the things that matter for the sake of Christ. This word citizenship is interesting. I did a little bit of a a Greek word search on this one, and it's the only place where Paul will use this word in this particular manner, manner. and it's polituma, polituma, and it's the Greek word from which we derive our word politics, and I think that's interesting to me. It seems like politics is just all out there in your face and you get varying degrees of that depending on what people align or or how they lean politically but when you think of us being citizens of heaven that our politics is in heaven our political affiliation is in heaven it kind of puts a whole new meaning on it you know if you really want to divide a room Maybe you had people gathered around your Thanksgiving table who disagree politically and you bring up a political topic and you're going to divide the room pretty quick. I think you've probably experienced that. Or even when we're sharing of our faith, you know, and trying to blend in politics with that, how quickly it can be divisive. Our treasure in heaven far outweighs our political affiliation here on earth. We need to be less political and we need to be more spiritual. I would want for my political affiliation to be seen not as Republican or Democrat, but rather a theocrat, that we are about God and we are about His kingdom work because our only hope is in a Savior. Our hope is not found in a political figure, but in Jesus Christ. And a day is coming where He will return and He will rule and He will reign over everything and everyone. Until that time, we eagerly await. Our politics is in the kingdom. If you think about it, the Jews missed their Messiah because they wanted a political redeemer. We tend to gravitate towards those that are strong personalities. We think they're going to rescue us from this. They're going to balance the budget. That that would take a miracle. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to gain me more freedoms. And we get so fixated on the, the earthly politics and we can fall victim to the same things that the Judaizers did where they, they thought that Jesus, or the, the Jews, I should say, they thought that Jesus was going to be their political Redeemer. He was going to free them from the yoke of, of Rome, and He was going to establish His kingdom then and there on earth, and He was going to free them, and as soon as they saw Him going a different direction, speaking of these things of the kingdom heaven, speaking of these things on the spiritual plane, they said, I don't want any part of that. Uh, my Redeemer is going to be here on this earth, but our Redeemer is in heaven and he has conquered death in the grave and he is seated at the right hand of the father he redeemed us from so much more than an earthly oppressor he loosened us from the bonds of sin and death and he gave us victory over it first corinthians fifteen fifty three through 57 for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal body puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope is in Jesus. The world's only hope is in Jesus. How are we waiting for our king. The title Paul uses here, I think clearly shows us Jesus Christ's lordship, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules and those who have put their faith in him have surrendered to him as Lord. He is the king of heaven. He is the king that we await. Philippians 2:9 through11 Paul had written there, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question becomes for us as citizens of heaven how are we waiting for our King? In Philip, I'm sorry, um, back when uh, Jesus had ascended into heaven in the book of acts <clears throat> we see the disciples looking up into heaven two white men stood there this is in acts 1, 10 through 11 uh, these two men in white robes were looking at the disciples they were gazing up into heaven when they had seen their lord go and they say of them it says men of galilee why do you stand looking into heaven this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the way same way that you saw him go into heaven. As it's from heaven that we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are we like those who are waiting for their King and being asked why do we stand looking into heaven? We need to get about the kingdom work. You do you profess him as Lord over your life now, and does your real life reflect that? So, how do we become heavenly citizens? You know, if your passport isn't stamped correctly, if you don't have the right citizenship, then you're the wrong citizen. You're in the wrong country. We need to be citizens of heaven, stamped with the blood of Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ who took our penalty to the cross, and there he bled and died for our sin once and for all. And by trusting, in that redemptive work of His on the cross and repenting of our sin and turning towards God in faith, then we too become citizens of heaven. And we rejoice because now our names are written in heaven. Is your name written in the rolls of heaven? We see Paul in Philippians 4, just jumping ahead a little bit, but look at verse 3 of Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Revelation speaks of those who are written, the the citizens of heaven, the children of God, whose names are written in the book of life. Our name is written there because we had the perfect one, the Lamb of God, intercede on our behalf based on the merits of Christ and not on our own. He put our name down in the book of life. Our Savior lives there. He will return from there. He's going to take those that are His back there. We're going to see those who have gone on to be there. And we also will receive our eternal reward there and is getting to worship our Lord and Savior face-to-face We should be seeing heaven as more than just our end destination. But we should see it also as our motivation. And I think more importantly, that that is what we should view it as. That by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead is what Paul had written previously. This should be what motivates us towards the Christ-like life that we are pressing on in we know when we shall appear that we shall be like Him. In 1 John 3, 2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has yet, not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. When we live with that heaven mindset, And the thought of Jesus coming now, that should keep us from doing a lot of stuff, right? And it should motivate us to be doing a lot of right stuff, to be living in purity as Paul would write there, or sorry, John, in 1 John, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Living more like Christ, striving to be more like him. And we'll end in the last verse here of chapter 3. With our promotion, if you will, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We will all change locations and we will change our appearance as well. We're going to be transformed. Our lowly body will be transformed and the older you get, you start to recognize, and that lowly body becomes more of a reality to you. <laughs> we have a co-worker that uh, talks about maintaining the decline. You know, that's what many of us are, are doing right now. We're just maintaining the decline. But the word transformed is the Greek word. It's a long one. Metaschematizo. And it's where we get the word schematic from. We get a new schematic <laughs> both inwardly and outwardly, we will have a resurrected body to be like His glorious body. And that's really awesome to think about, you know, that it's never going to wear out, that it's not going to be susceptible to the diseases and the aches and the pains that we experience. It's never going to gain weight, um, not going to lose its hearing, not going to lose its hair, um, not going to have wrinkles. The glorified, upgraded body is the promise for every believer. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glory, bo- glorious body, by the power that enables even Him, Him, even to subject all things to Himself. And you know, when Jody and I took our family to Germany, there was a time where the the, the newness was there and we had a lot of an excitement about it. We got to experience new things, new adventure. But eventually that wore off and we began to get homesick, longing for our family to be with those that we were closely related to, but to a degree longing for the things that we loved about our country here. The closer we got to home, When we would be flying over here for vacation, we finally came back um, to live here. The closer we got to home, the more our excitement would grow. It was something that I believe is just hardwired in us. When you grow up somewhere, you have that homing instinct. We talked about that last week, that homing beacon. I believe that is God within us in the spiritual sense. Spiritually, that is what occurs when we are saved. The spirit inside us causes us to gravitate towards that heavenly home. And some of us are closer to the finish line in our walk, but all of us are closer to the finish line than we probably think. Although I'm younger than some of you here, certainly older than a lot of you here, but even though I'm younger, you know, I could walk out this door today and life could end for me. Life is short but eternity is forever. So look around you for good examples to follow in your Christian walk, recognizing it's us in this race together. Also be watchful for the imitations, the pseudo-citizens. Look up for Jesus to return and be sure you are a citizen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our time spent in your word. God, that your truth is something that we can hold firm to and we know that it will not waver. And you give us a lot of good examples around us that we can follow, mature Christians, and I'm praying that we're all striving to arrive at that place of of full maturity, that it's not going to happen here, but when we arrive on the other side of glory. But you create in us that longing for our heavenly home. We long to be with you, Father, and we thank you for providing the means by which we can have you and have heaven and for many of us here we know what it is to have that promise of our heavenly home we have by faith looked to you to be our savior and our lord and we have bowed the knee before you now as lord and i pray for anyone here that does not know you god that they would just have a full-on realization of their sin that they are enemies of the cross And God, that you would show them that you have mercy that is great and all they need to do is cry out for that and you are so willing to give them your mercy if only they will just plead to you for forgiveness of sins and that they would turn to you in faith and that you would change that spiritual address for them, God. Only you can do that, Lord. We pray that you would do the work that you can do in the human soul to save them and to bring them to glory one day when they leave here we thank you that that is a promise for all of us help us to live that out help us to be motivated by that longing for a heavenly home God, I just pray for an intentionality in our walk that we would be faithful to be in our word often and on in prayer often god as paul would write continually and that we're also serving to hold each other accountable and encouraging one another as we do see the day that is drawing near. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have for us and all that you have for us here in the future. As we uh, leave this church, I pray that we would live out this kingdom life in our workplaces, in our homes, wherever you would put us, Lord, that we are seeking to glorify you and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.